Welcome to the Mediate.com podcast with Veronica Kramer. Well, hey there, and thanks for joining me for another great episode of the Mediate.com podcast. Today, I'm excited because we're going to talk all about how to leverage design principles to elevate your mediation practice. And I'm so excited for today's guest. Today's guest is Darren Thompson. Darren is legal counsel with the Ministry of Attorney General in British Columbia, Canada. He has helped to initiate several justice system innovation projects, including the British Columbia Civil Resolution Tribunal. Darren is also a former member of the Canadian delegation to the United Nations Working Group on Online Dispute Resolution. He has taught legal innovation and legal technology courses at several law schools in Canada and Ukraine. He holds law degrees from the University of Victoria and the University of Edinburgh. And Darren's latest project involves creating continuing professional development resources for legal professionals in a podcast format. And if you're curious, more information on Darren is available at darrenthompson.ca. So with that, Darren, welcome to the show and thanks for joining me on the Mediate.com podcast. Hi, Veronica. Thanks a lot for having me. I am uh, happy to be here and looking forward to our chat. Yeah, this is going to be awesome. And I know that we had a lot of fun during our prep call. And so since then, I've been thinking, you know, when I think about mediation, I don't immediately think about design. But ever since we had that phone call a couple weeks ago, I've been thinking more and more about how design principles can really be applied to the delivery of a mediation service. And so I'm so excited for today's conversation. And just by way of background, um, I know that you were one of the brilliant minds behind the design of Canada's Civil Resolution Tribunal, the first online tribunal in Canada. And so I thought before we talk about some kind of big picture uh, design principles that maybe, you know, you could talk to us a little bit about what that design process was like for designing the Civil Resolution Tribunal. Now, you know, I know that you don't work for the Civil Resolution Tribunal, but, you know, tell me what you can about designing that. Yeah, you bet. Thanks. It's a good question. One of my favorite subjects, actually. So <laughs> as it as it happens, uh, first, I should uh, just confirm that uh, I'll be happy to share all of my views. Please, I ask everybody to take them as my personal views and and not those of my employer. I do work, as you noted, for the Ministry of Attorney General. That's for government here in British Columbia. So uh, working on the CRT, uh, that's what we call it for short, uh, the Civil Resolution Tribunal. Uh, it was amazing. I got to be part of a, a very public focused group of innovators that came from uh, a range of disciplines. So we had people like me in here from, from a legal background. Uh, we had, some of us were quite focused on dispute resolution and had worked on a lot of mediation types of processes and things like that. But we also had people from outside the disciplines, right? So we had uh, people who were just more focused on project management and people just focused on technology. And we came also to, the, as the team grew, we came to uh, have team members with things like user experience design, uh, looking at data, collecting data and, and things like that. So in the, in the end, like once we got going, we had built this great multidisciplinary team who uh, had the green light to finally start doing things differently, but 
doing that right in the public justice system. And what we ended up with was uh, a unique user-focused tribunal. So it's an administrative uh, tribunal that um, for the dispute resolution professionals listening to this had um, the following sort of uh, features or phases. So the first phase was an online legal expert system. So this is like a, it's kind of like a smart questionnaire that you can do on uh, through an internet browser or through your phone or something like that. And it's a intelligent system that asks you questions in the simplest form possible. And as the user, you're just answering them based on your circumstances. But what the system can do is um, help you diagnose the problem that you're having. It can give you information just about that problem because it's it's diagnosed it, so it knows what we're talking about. So then it can just give you this targeted information about that problem. And, and once we've done that, we can also get you started on the dispute resolution process. So we can give you uh, self-help tools, easy things that you can do that then the ordinary person who isn't a dispute resolution professional might not think of or might not be confident doing. Well, we can give you those tools and get you started. And uh, if that doesn't resolve your dispute, then that tool, intelligent system can stream you into the next phase and stream you into the, the place you need to go. So for the CRT, the the next phase would be online negotiation. So if, there, if many people have studied or looked at online dispute resolution, uh, this is quite common where the parties are just using the internet basically to negotiate back and forth asynchronously. They're using text uh, for this type of, of work. Um, if that doesn't resolve your dispute, then the next phase at the tribunal was uh, facilitation or case management. And this is really where a lot of the action took place. It's, it's very mediation like, uh, it has a lot of, it's a, it's a neutral third party is coming on and facilitating that negotiation, uh, between, between the parties involved in the dispute and, uh, helping them resolve all of their claims, ideally, or at least some of their claims, uh, consensually. If the parties though, aren't able to resolve the entire dispute that way, then that facilitator, the case manager, uh, lets them know, you know, we can't get a full resolution here. Uh, so we're going to send you through to the next phase, which is adjudication. And it is an adversarial process. But before they let you go, they work with the parties to make everybody, to, to get them prepared for the adjudication. So make sure the issues are narrowed, make sure the parties know what to expect, uh, know when they're supposed to do things, and all of, all of those um, uh, anything that they can do to get the adjudication as narrow uh, as possible and to get make it as efficient as, as possible. And then, yes, you would uh, have your online adjudication. So the, um, the looking at it from a whole, stepping back, uh, this process emerged because we weren't just our team wasn't just engaging in, you know, the latest effort to make some amendments to court rules or add a mediation step to an otherwise unchanged court process. We, as I said, we were given the green light to create a complete system that was different and it was different by intention and different by design. Well, very cool. And it sounds like it. And, you know, thank you for sharing that overview. And 
one thing I wanted to follow up on. So I know that there was an article that you co-wrote with Shannon Salter on the Civil Resolution Tribunal. Um, it appeared in the McGill Journal of Dispute Resolution, and I'll give the title just in case anyone wants to check it out, uh, called The Public-Centered Civil Justice Redesign, a Case Study of the British British Columbia Civil Resolution Tribunal. And one thing you talked about in there was end-to-end design. And I wanted to pull that out because you were just starting to talk about how, you know, with the Civil Resolution Tribunal, you had this opportunity to do something different, to come up with something that wasn't just, uh, I imagine, kind of taking what was otherwise happening in person and putting it online. You had the opportunity, along with others, to kind of rethink it. So can you talk a little bit about what end-to-end design means? Yeah, you bet. Okay, so let's uh, back up a little bit bit here and we'll start with just the principle of end-to-end design itself. So uh, let's imagine that you're you're not in dispute resolution. Let's say you are somebody who's in charge of designing an e-commerce website, you know, something that, uh, something like Amazon or or, uh, Shopify, any any online store. And your business goal is to get a high conversion rate, right? So you want your visitors to um, do some things on your site, but you also want to carry them through and get to a specific goal. In this case, it would be the goal is to, you know, for people to get things into their cart and to complete the purchase. So uh, what that means is you've got to design your service to get people on the right track and keep them on the right track, keep them moving uh, right through your process. So one one of the phrases that we used to talk about on our team was it's like wrapping our our user in a warm blanket and then just leading them right through your process. You don't want anybody leaving or having to leave to go look for other things or do other things because they might not come back. Or similarly, you don't want them to get caught up on a step within your process that uh, takes them in the wrong direction or um, does anything really that can hurt your conversion rate, right? That will hurt, um, that will stop the person from making it through your journey. So to bring it back to the the civil resolution tribunal, we had, as I say, this, uh, this license to ask the questions like, what would the whole process look like if we started over? And keep in mind, like for those of us working directly in the public justice system, a lot of time that means courts. There's a lot of history behind our current practices and processes. Uh, a lot of a lot of what we know today, though, was built on incremental changes that happened over a long period of time, um, and it, some of that is reflected in the amount of process and the amount of steps that we see in our current system. So, oh, we got a problem. Okay, let's add a process. Got another problem. Let's add a rule or a form or a certificate here. It's not really end-to-end design uh, from that perspective. So, in creating something new, we got to build around uh, build something that fit together step-by-step and in the process, build in some important design principles. So let me give you one of those uh, principles. In uh, in the public justice system anyways, and I'm sure this is true for a lot of people outside the public justice system, we care a lot about proportionality. So let's only engage as much time and effort and complexity as required, both for the users, for the benefit of the users, and for the system itself, because in the system we have finite resources. So in the opposite or in in the reverse, don't treat everything as if we're going to need to boil the ocean 
for every single dispute that comes along. And I know a lot of mediators that I've dealt with, uh, they, they like this phrase, let's make the forum fit the fuss. And that's a big part of what's happening with uh, proportionality. So it, another way I ask people to imagine it is, let's say it's like going up a flight of stairs. So let's start our disputants off on the first step. Uh, this is the simplest, easiest, fastest way to go, often the cheapest too. Uh, let's give the parties the tools to try and solve it on their own. So that's one of the things we would do with that, that expert system, the legal expert system I was talking about. And uh, parties get through that. We say, oh, okay, that didn't work. Okay, well, let's uh, give you a little more help. We'll give you a little more structure and we'll get you to take the next step up to the online negotiation. Okay, that didn't resolve your dispute. Let's take another step up. Now we're in facilitation. You keep walking up those steps those steps until ultimately you're in the adversarial adjudication. That's where someone else has to decide how the dispute is going to be resolved. And um, that is going to be the, the, the more expensive and the more involved and the more complicated step relative to all of the other steps that came uh, before it. So um, these are some of the sort of design principles we had in terms of uh, designing the end-to-end -end process. It's, it's different than, than a typical public justice process where they start you off as if you're going to go to trial, your documents that you file, your pleadings, they state your legal um, positions that you're going to argue in a trial. Um, when you know, we looked at the what the statistics tell us about trials and things like that, it, it looks like most common laws, common law court systems only have about 2% of cases getting to trial. So what we did was we tried to turn our mind to what would the right fit look like for the other 98% of cases that aren't going to make it to trial. And that's what we started um, designing in this end-to-end -end process. But we still had to have it work for people who were gonna, going to need an adjudication and bring them all the way through. So um, this is uh, kind of some of the, the the main thrust is just again building a system where you, um, you you make it so that each step will flow you through to the next thing you need, but ideally it's going to build uh, on things as we go through. So once again, let's start small from a problem solving perspective and then gradually escalate up in terms of both time. Uh, and effort well, and as well as cost and, and involvement and those sorts of things. Yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, a couple key words kept coming to mind as you were, you know, sharing all that. And that's really the one thing that I've noticed is it sounds like you were really purposeful in what you were doing in terms of like, you know, you talk about each step, moving the customer from one step to the next and only doing so as necessary. And then the other thing I wanted to pull out from there is, I think that's interesting how you were, you know, you and the team were, were designing, it sounds like with the likely outcome in mind, because as I kind of think big picture, I mean, how many of us do we, how many times do we plan for like the worst case scenario, that thing that has, you know, a small likelihood of happening. But it sounds like you really flipped it and you were planning for the 98%, I think is what you said, like 98% of cases settle outside of a courtroom. So that's what this system was designed for. Yeah, as 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 many of us, uh, I'm sure, and uh, some of the people listening here might have a, a legal education, a legal training. Um, of course, we're trained to focus on the the worst possible case and the worst scenario. Um, but we realized <clears throat> that doesn't mean we have to design our process 
as if that's going to happen. And and the other sort of buzzword or phrase that I ask people to think of is systems thinking. So let's look at this like it's a system where you're moving lots of things through. You're looking for patterns and things that happen over and over again. And and absolutely, we're we're saying that only a small percentage of cases are actually being resolved in trial. So let's not treat everybody as if uh, they we need to boil the ocean for them. Let's uh, look and see if we can build this thing so it makes sense. And for a lot of the cases that aren't the worst possible um, scenario and, and uh, don't require that kind of treatment. Yeah. And, you know, one thing I wanted to bring up from our prep call that you said that, I, that really stuck with me is uh, you mentioned, you know, don't use technology to solve a bad process. So I'm wondering, can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, that's a great one. And I see it over and over again. So here's <laughs> here's the dynamic. Um, somebody who has a bad process, the, they're responsible. They're, they administer a, ba a, a bad a process that's having problems. They notice somebody else doing something good with technology and, and come to think that it it's because of the technology that, uh, that the other process is working good. So that is working well. So <clears throat> find me a set of court rules that are too complicated and confusing, and I'll create you an electronic version of those rules that are still <laughs> long and confusing and complicated. Um, you know, I, I still know that some people think that adding hypertext links uh, to rules of procedure that cross-reference themselves hundreds of times are going to make anything easier. Uh, show me a court form that's uh, it, nearly impossible to fill out properly, and I'll create you a digital version that's even harder to fill out. So when we throw technology at a, at a bad process, we create a bad digital process. Um, it can, it can often make things a little bit worse. So what I ask people to do is, is recognize that technology, it's not really a fix or a solution for a process that needs help. So instead, what I ask people do, to do is think hard about improving the underlying process. So this often means um, reducing what's involved, reducing the number of steps, simplifying things as much as possible, and um, do, the, do that kind of hard work before you add technology into the mix. Um, once again, I just see it happen over and over again in, um, in the world of justice and the, and the world of dispute resolution. So um, the other thing that I tell people is sometimes the best fixes that you can do for your processes, they're not even going to need technology. Um, but you, one of the things you can do is, is think about the, uh, the right way to use your technology. So um, one, of the, uh, one of the ways I ask, again, people to think about it is, is use, to, use technology for things that it's good at. Don't try and use it for things that it's not. Uh, suitable for. And um, some of the things that technology is good at are these repetitive, simple, transactional things, things that follow a typical pattern. And what you want to do is use technology to kind of carry the load for these appropriate things. Ideally, if you, if you design your system that way, then you'll free up your people, you'll free up your humans to provide the one-to-one -one support for your users and your clients on things where technology uh, can't serve them very well. So what it means is this type of thinking is you got to be open to doing things differently. 
So don't create a digital version of the current state. Uh, that's why video trials or sometimes video mediations don't always work better than uh, doing things in person. And the the idea when I'm um, kind of getting asking uh, dispute resolution professionals and lawyers and judges to think about this is I remind them that uh, airplanes don't flap their wings, but they can fly much higher and they can fly faster and they can carry heavy loads than birds. So in the dispute resolution world, um, it means that we might have to do things a little differently if we're using technology. So think about creating new ways to do things using technology, um, even if they're not digital versions of the old thing that you were doing beforehand. Oh yeah, and that sort of reminds me, and I don't think we had a chance to talk about this in our prep call, but um, in a former role, I was doing online mediations, like just entirely online mediations. And just to go back to kind of your whole thought of, you know, you have to start anew when you're using technology to kind of design you know, the, the system or service, whatever it is. When I first started mediating online, I first fell into that trap of thinking, how can I just replicate whatever I normally yeah. would do in person or over the phone into this online environment? And then I quickly discovered, I can't just do that. I've got to almost create this whole new like mediation technique in order to be able to mediate by text asynchronously. So I, I totally get you. I totally get yeah, you. Yeah. Yeah. Do, do you find that dynamic happens? I sure do where you're, you're evaluating one thing against the other, right? So you're mm -hmm. saying, is this, is this better? Is this tech version of this thing better? Or is this tech version of this process like mediation worse? And I think you nailed it where I, I say, how about it's different? Yeah. Right? Like each thing is going to have its strengths and its weaknesses. N neither is going to be wholly better or wholly worse, right? There, there's going to be each strength. So let's find ways that we can build on the strengths of each way. And that's kind of where I'm coming from with the use technology for the things that it's going to work well for. Don't try and use it for things that um, it won't work well for. So the, the idea that, um, I, I also encourage people to recognize is, is you can mix these processes back and forth. And it sounds like you were doing that as well, right? So um, have people do a little bit of work on technology, on the technology channel, and then have them jump off and we'll do something uh, in the analog channel, right? So maybe in the lead up to a mediation, we're going to work together online remotely and asynchronously to isolate the issues and narrow the issues. Maybe I'll use it to inform some of my users about what they can expect and, and what the process will look like. But yeah, we're still going to do something in person. We're still going to have an interaction that's going to happen in real time. Maybe it's in person. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll mix that with some telephone. We are mixing technology in our um, in our lives, like crazy these days, you know, when you text somebody to then meet up for a coffee, um, why can't we do that in our dispute resolution processes as well? So absolutely. Oh, yeah. I mean, it doesn't have to be this all or nothing thing. And then, you know, I, I totally get you too, in terms of using technology on something that's like simple or repetitive. I mean, one thing that I've started doing, even just for um, arranging guests, you know, for this podcast is at the beginning, I was trying to do scheduling just emails back and forth until I quickly discovered, oh, wait, there are these 
online scheduling systems where I can just connect it with my calendar and then my guests can easily you know, go to the link and pick a date and time that works for them. And I, I get to avoid all the emails back and forth and the, oh wait, in between the gap of, you know, one response to another, that one time that we thought was open now filled. And so, yep. yeah, yeah, no, that's a, that's a great example. And, the, and if we're taking a systems thinking approach, or if we're taking the, the, um, the, the principles that technology works well, where there's a pattern that's, uh, has repetitive aspects to it, that's a great example. And I think you could, uh, you and you know mediators can think of ways to build on that. What are things that I do over and over again that do kind of fit a pattern, and um, and, and maybe I could get technology to share some of that load with me, so it will free me up to do the things that the technology just can't do well, and that humans like me can can do really well. Yeah. And so now I'm curious to get your take. I heard you mention at the outset of the conversation, you talked about user experience design. And I've heard you throw around phrases like human-centered approach and user-centered design. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So we, um, some of those phrases that people might hear, human-centered approach, uh, user-centered design, user experience design, um, these were all ideas or methods that we had noticed were being used in other disciplines and wanted to bring them into our design process for the civil resolution tribunal. And the reason we were interested in it is because it's a way, it was a, we saw it as a way to put the public first, to put our users first, not in an indirect way where like many of us had been involved in other justice reform projects and dispute resolution design projects where we had the best of intentions to put the public first. And, you know, we tried to plain language uh, things as much as we could. And we tried to make things seem as simple to us as we could. Um, that we, we'd all done a lot of that, but these um, methods are a little different. And it's because you're dealing directly, you're bringing the public in as, as directly as possible. So some of the, the, the methods uh, the, that we used, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll explain to you and they might illustrate what I mean here. So before we even started designing the dispute resolution process, we had the chance to do some surveys. Uh, and uh, these were just asking the public, like a sample portion of the public uh, or potential users, so our prospective users, um, how they like to do certain interactions. And um, some of them might have been about, uh, some of them were about the frequency that they use technology and how comfortable they are on um, using the internet for things, but also things like how would you prefer to resolve a dispute? Um, would you prefer to do it yourself? Or would you prefer to hire a lawyer? And those are the kinds of questions that we were, again, um, we weren't using our own assumptions. We were actually going out and collecting it straight uh, from the public. So another example is um, that the uh, activity we did was targeted stakeholder consultation. So with, uh, with either some of our users or proxy users. So when I say proxy users here, I might be talking about a, an organization like a not-for-profit who helps people with um, uh, people with disabilities or uh, people from you know marginalized communities 
and ask them, you know, what do your users want? What do they need? What are their capabilities? What are their limitations? But um, you, you're going out and you're actually talking to them about the ideas and, and um, principles that you're considering working with. Also, we did some online focus groups. So there were some um, small and medium-sized business people who participated in, in a group. And once again, asked them these questions like, um, how, uh, you know, what is a good amount of time for you in terms of resolving a dispute? Is it uh, two years? That's quite often what a, a court process will be like, or is it more like a month? And of course they were, uh, definitely prefer to resolve disputes as quickly as possible. So um, going out and uh, collecting this information straight from our users was a key part of it. And other things that we did would be um, like process mapping. So if we're, as we're um, designing what we're going to do for the future state, we would map it out step by step. What would, what would happen? What, uh, we could even map out what we thought uh, process would involve in terms of time, resources, who would have to do it, all of those sorts of things. And by the way, if people are interested in process mapping, they can also um, do that now for their current state. You can go out and uh, map the process that it takes right from the time that you start scheduling somebody uh, to the time that you're doing whatever intake you do, whatever kind of preparation you do, all of that. You can you can map it out step by step and then compare the two, the current state versus the future state. Uh, we also did um, journey mappings. So that's like sort of tracking the narrative of, of what it's like for a user to move through your service or your process. And um, once we got going, we um, like once we started getting the concepts ironed out or they started to crystallize, we could build prototypes of things. So user experience design or human centered design uh, will often involve testing your prototypes. So you bring in real users and you ask them to try this thing that you've built the analogy again, it might be something that you built with cardboard and masking tape just to see uh, if, it, if, it, if it works or if the concept works and you get people to test it out and, and let you know uh, what they think about it. So these processes continued all the way through uh, as we were, uh, once we started designing um, and once we started building and even when the technology as it was actually being built everything would go out that we could anyways, everything would go out to get tested. So if you're building a screen that is the equivalent to a form or you're collecting information, send it out, um, see if we can grab some people who are willing to test it and let us know what they think. So it's really, once again, the, 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 the core concept is pulling the public right into your process, having them co-design as much as you can uh, with them because they are ultimately the ones who are going to use it. Don't just rely on yourself. Again, you might have the best of intentions, but don't just rely on your yourselves to figure out what the public wants. You bring them in and let them tell you directly. Yeah. And, and that's definitely really great food for thought. And, you know, the other thing I was thinking of too, is maybe part of it is just sort of adopting this mindset of continuous improvement because from what you're sharing about kind of the different design considerations and different design principles it sounds like design designing a service um, it's meant to be an iterative process like you're supposed to be kind of 
seeking out feedback and then incorporating that feedback and refining the process and continuing it to continuing to make it better and more responsive to what your user wants. Am I following? Yeah, you bet. So okay. don't, you know, the old way of doing things, some people might have um, heard the phrase like waterfall uh, project delivery, where you build and build and build. And then on the day that you're system, your process, the day that it launches, it kind of goes over a waterfall, your team shuts down, and you sure hope you did it right. Um, this is uh, taking a, a different approach where you build a little bit, you get the testing done, and you implement. And yes, you keep uh, you keep testing. So um, you keep improving. And you mentioned continuous improvement. That's a, a, a concept that we absolutely tried to again build into the civil resolution tribunal and what that means is we're collecting data we're collecting as much feedback uh, as we can to um, look for pain points look for areas where the the data is telling us that we might have a bit of a problem what we do is we uh, try and figure out some fixes for those problems and then we implement them and then we look and see what the data tells us after that. So let's say you divide your um, continuous improvement process up into I don't know, quarters or something like that. So every four months, pull the data, see where the problems are, implement the fix. Four months later, what you want to see is your data showing that this pain point or this problem is uh, not as bad as it was. Maybe it's gone altogether, ideally. But um, the, the whole thing, if, if you do that and apply that to your business, or your process, uh, you'll have something that gets better the more it gets used. And we really liked that idea that uh, the more people we move through our process, the stronger and stronger and better the, the system would become. And that's a really good point too, that not just, you know, don't just rely on intuition, that there is data there that you can collect, that you can use to inform your decisions. Yeah, that's fascinating. Well, Darren, this has been such a fascinating conversation. I feel like I've learned a lot of different design principles. And I imagine, you know, for our mediators who are listening, whether you have your own private practice or you work for an organization, I mean, it sounds like these are really principles that any mediator could start to think about how they could apply and incorporate into their own mediation services, just in terms of thinking about, you know, what is their customer's journey from beginning to end? And what does that customer experience look like? And is it working for its intended purpose? Um, if any listeners are sort of interested to learn more about these design principles, do you have any recommendations about, you know, areas to look into? Yeah, you bet. There's a there's a few different ways that people can learn more about it. One is since we've talked about the Civil Resolution Tribunal, uh, I'd encourage people to go ahead and check out the CRT website. And and what you're going to look for is the blog part of their website, where they post. I think it's uh, monthly their information and data that they are collecting uh, from their own system. So um, the website is uh, civil civil resolution uh, slash blog. So uh, you'll see some business intelligence statistics, like how many cases are moving through the system, how many are resolving, and you'll see some qualitative data as well. So that's data that they're continuing to collect directly from the users. But um, beyond that, you might have to look outside of our disciplines of, of law and dispute resolution uh, to, to find 
to find information about um, the design principles and things like that. There's a lot of good design thinking books out there. A lot of these will have to do with website design and software design. Brace yourself. Um, they'll look like a, they'll, they'll be overwhelming. It'll make it seem like it's the answer to everything. It'll be a bit dogmatic. Um, that's okay. Uh, just uh, try and take it in stride. But the best way for people like me and maybe some others out there is to just do it. So I was, I was, I was exposed to this dealing with, you know, consultants and other people in our multidisciplinary team. And, um, I realized that you could just start doing it and, and you're not going to do a lot of harm. Uh, you can start small, uh, you can do some surveys. So if you have people listening out there, they, they probably have access to some online free online tools or tools that are already included with other um, products they're using. So Microsoft teams has forms, Google has forms. You could just create little questionnaires with 10 questions that you want to know about your users and their experience with your service, send it out to them. Uh, some people respond and uh, you could start to look at what, uh, what insights you can gather from that and, and what it's telling you. You're doing it. You're doing the design thinking then. You're doing, you're doing the user experience design, the user focus, uh, the human-centered design. So um, it it's, doesn't have to be high tech. You can just grab a clipboard. You can go out and talk to people waiting in a court registry or um, you know, select a few clients who've gone through your process and uh, call them up and ask them if they're willing to answer a few questions. It really can be low tech. And you'll be surprised at how much you learn after only talking to a few people. So these don't have to be massive scientific surveys. You don't have to talk to thousands of people. Uh, a lot of times, if you got a problem in your process, by the time you've talked to five people, you're going to see a pattern starting to emerge. So key point, get out here and do it. Don't worry about um, making mistakes. Get involved in a project where someone else is doing it or uh, do it for yourself if you're a solo. And um, like I said, just start off with some uh, easy questions. If you got to throw in a gift card for a coffee and a donut <laughs> or something, go for it. People respond well to that. And um, a lot of this, once again, there's not a lot of magic to it. it. Most of it's common sense. It's just not yet common practice. And that's what we need is, is to make it more uh, common practice. And, and uh, you'll be up and running with this in, in no time. Oh yeah, and those are those are some great takeaways. Thank you for sharing, Darren. And um, you know, if any of the listeners, if they want to learn more about your work or connect with you personally, can you go ahead and give your website one more time? Sure. It's uh, it's just my name. It's DarrenThompson.ca. So D-A-R-I-N-T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N.ca. All right, great. All right, Darren. Well, hey, this has been so much fun. Uh, thank you again for coming on the Mediate.com podcast. Thanks a lot for having me, Veronica. It was uh, it was a lot of fun. All right, friends. Well, that wraps up another great episode of the Mediate.com podcast. We'll talk to you next time. This podcast was brought to you by Mediate.com. For more information about Mediate.com's programs and content, please visit our website at www.mediate.com.